Welcome to Fangfology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture. Today, I'm your solo host, Kaylee Donaldson. This month, I'm taking hold of the reins of the show to talk about one of my paranormal obsessions. Catherine will step in next month with one of her personal favourites, then after that, normal Fangfology business shall recommence. Vampires on the big screen come and go, the trend never fully dying out. After the glut of post-Twilight paranormal fiction tired out the general public in the late 2000s to early 2010s, Hollywood seemed to embrace zombies over their undead brethren for a while. Now it feels like they're coming back in style. Vampire YAs and headlines thanks to books like The Beautiful Series and The Fell of Dark, and of course Stephanie Meyer's return with Midnight Sun. Netflix has the French horror series Vampires, BBC adapted Dracula once more, albeit not very well. And there are more Draculas on the horizon, with female filmmakers like Karen Kusama and recent Oscar winner Chloe Zhao at the helm. Plus there are planned films about the Demeter Crossing and a film focused on Renfield, of all people. But this isn't the first time this century that Hollywood has tried to revive the fortunes of its classic horror creatures. The studio that made its name from iconic monsters hoped to bring them back for a new era of blockbuster filmmaking. The result, however, was one of the decade's biggest cinematic missteps. This is the story of the rise and fall but mostly fall, of the Dark Universe. Founded in 1912, Universal Pictures is one of the oldest surviving film studios in the United States, and the oldest member of the Big Five who helped define Hollywood as we know it. Founded by several men, including Carl Lemley, the company had moved west to avoid the restrictive measures put upon the motion picture business by Thomas Edison. They broke with the then custom of denying billing and screen credits to performers helping to create the star system, and the first acting celebrities of the 1910s. Lemley opened the world's largest motion picture production facility, Universal City Studios, in 1915 and made waves with lavish horror tin dramas of character actor Lon Chaney, including The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. In 1928, Lemley made his son Carol Jr. head of Universal Pictures as a 21st birthday present. How generous of Dad. The younger Lemley was keen to bring Universal into the modern day with serious dramas like All Quiet on the Western Front and his studio's first all-colour musical, 1930s King of Jazz. His biggest impact, however, came with his commitment to creating horror films. Carol Sr. was initially hesitant, believing such projects would be too costly and not profitable enough for wide audiences. Yet beginning with the low-budget adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1931, Universal became the first home of Hollywood horror. Efficiently made, often surprisingly experimental, and willing to push the boundaries of the incoming Hayes Code, Universal's monsters made them a lot of money, and defined the studio for decades to come. Universal Monsters remains a key part of the studio's identity, even as tastes changed and the company became part of the mega-conglomerate owned by Comcast. Todd Browning's Dracula, James Wales' Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein, Carol Freund's The Mummy, and works like The Invisible Man, The Wolfman and The Creature from the Black Lagoon are part of Hollywood history. The iconography of each film is embedded in pop culture, familiar even to those who have never actually seen the films. Nowadays, Universal may have major IPs under their belt, from the Fast and Furious franchise to The Purge to the extended Jurassic Park series, but they continue to return to their classic monsters in the hopes of reviving them from the dead for a new generation. Over the ensuing decades since the end of the first Monsters era, for neatness's sake, let's say it concluded with Creature from the Black Lagoon, 
Universal has remade, reimagined and tried to breathe new life into its most familiar franchise. There was a wonderfully underrated adaptation of the stage version of Dracula starring Frank Langella from 1979 that performed modestly at the box office, but was a disappointment for the studio that made its name via that iconic vampire. In 1999, there was a surprise hit with Stephen Summers' The Mummy, which turned a 1932 horror into an Indiana Jones-esque adventure tale that spawned two sequels and a spin-off. Yet 2004's Van Helsing, another Stephen Summers action-adventure monster mash, which featured Dracula, Frankenstein, his monster, the Wolfman, and Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde, who's not a universal monster, by the way, disappointed at the box office. That film was intended to start a new franchise of monster crossover movies, but that never came to fruition. It took until the 2010s for Universal to recalibrate their plans for the monsters. It was a new era of blockbuster filmmaking and Universal wanted to keep up with the superhero explosion that redefined the industry. Enter the Dark Universe. In 2006, Universal announced plans to remake The Wolfman, with Oscar-winning actor Benicio Del Toro in the lead. Del Toro was a self-confessed fan and collector of Wolfman memorabilia, and the project was set to be the third directorial feature of Mark Romanek, the award-winning filmmaker behind music videos for the likes of Madonna, David Bowie and Jay-Z. His plan was to blend the studio's hopes of a mainstream horror film with something more abstract. This makes sense given that Romanek was the guy behind the video for Closer by Nine Inch Nails. However, Romanek soon realised that Universal's vision did not line up with his. As he explained to Collider in 2016, when there's a certain amount of money involved, these things make studios and producers a little nervous. They don't necessarily understand it, or they feel that the balance will swing too far to something esoteric, and they could never come to an agreement on the right balance for that type of thing. Ultimately, it made more sense for them to find a director that was going to fulfil their idea of the film that they wanted, and we just sort of parted ways. Romanek ended up leaving The Wolfman mere weeks before filming was due to start. A month before principal photography began, Joe Johnson, director of Jumanji, Jurassic Park 3 and Captain America the First Avenger, was hired. Initially, the plan was for Johnson to keep the schedule set for Romanek, as well as that budget of $85 million. Shooting was supposed to last 80 days, Del Toro would start alongside Emily Blunt, Hugo Weaving and Anthony Hopkins, Danny Elfman was on spooky score duties, and the legendary makeup artist Rick Baker would provide the prosthetics. Baker had eagerly pursued the project since the original Wolfman was one of the movies that had inspired him to work in makeup in the first place. Really, the setup seemed primed for a horror hit. So what happened? Extensive reshoots ballooned the initial budget to close to $150 million, almost double its initial estimates. One of the given reasons for this was the decision to move the Wolfman from standing on two legs to four. The release date was pushed back numerous times, from November 2008 to Spring 2009, then a few more times before stopping on February 12, 2010, a month typically seen as a dumping ground of sorts for bad films the studio wants to abandon. Rick Baker was reportedly disappointed that the transformation scenes were done with CGI. Makes sense coming from the guy that made an American werewolf in London happen. The studio also started scrapping some of the technical aspects. Danny Elfman's initial score was deemed to be too repetitive, and since he was contractually obliged to work on Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland at the time, Universal replaced him with Paul Hasslinger. But a mere month before the film's release, the film reverted back to an edited version of Elfman's score because Hasslinger's electronic take was seen as a bad fit for a Victorian gothic horror. Editor Dennis Virkler was shunted, and Mark Goldblatt and Walter Murch were brought on board to recut the film, although reporting of the news does not specify about what that entailed. Whatever the case, it was hard to avoid the sense that the Wolfman was not going as Universal had hoped. 
The Wolfman made $142.6 million against a budget of $150 million. Reviews were negative, noting the dull and confused nature of the film as well as its over-reliance on CGI. Rick Baker won another Oscar for his works, but any hopes that Universal had for the Wolfman to revive their monsters fell apart quickly. It was admittedly nervy of Universal to allow the Wolfman to be an R-rated horror, but they never let it have its own identity outside of its status as a symbol of corporate brand strengthening. Hollywood was also in a period of flux in 2010. Sequels and franchises were the way to make money. The default way, indeed. The Marvel Cinematic Universe was in its first phase and making serious cash, while Disney had begun to mine its back catalogue for remake potential with Burton's Alice in Wonderland, a movie that made over a billion dollars worldwide. The major studios had never not been big on IPs and remakes, but after the Avengers helped change the game in 2012, it became evident just how far so many were willing to go to replicate the mould broken and remade by the MCU. Warner Brothers doubled down on its new era of DC Comics, with notoriously mixed results. Warner Brothers and Village Roadshow Pictures banked big on Guy Ritchie's King Arthur movie in the hopes that it would spawn a multi-film franchise, and they lost over $150 million in the process. Lionsgate saw major losses with its attempt to do the same with Robin Hood. The focus seemed to be less on making a traditional movie series than making it a limitless expanded universe very much in the vein of the multi-film crossovers of Marvel. It wasn't enough just to make a film and hope one day you could get a couple sequels out of it. Now it needed endless spin-off potential and it needed to be built in from the very first film. This concept made some sense when it came to Universal and its horrors. They often overlapped and featured multiple characters at once sometimes even parodied themselves as with the Abbott and Costello titles. It wasn't tough to see the potential in a vast, creature-populated universe of vampires, mummies, werewolves and mad scientists raising the dead. Van Helsing's central idea didn't suck, no pun intended. So if everyone wants their version of the Avengers, why not do it with a side order of Monster Mash? And what better film to start with than a Dracula one? Work had begun on a Dracula prequel, titled Dracula Untold way back in 2007, with Sam Worthington in the lead role. Eventually he was replaced by Luke Evans. The film was set to be a lavish historical epic, less horror than a war movie, focusing on Vlad Tepish and the vampire myth that would become a defining part of his history. As we explained in the second episode of our podcast on Dracula and Istanbul, Bram Stoker never actually based his vampire on the real historical figure of Vlad the Impaler. That cultural line was not drawn until the Turkish translation in the 20s, but the connection has become so widely accepted that few people know that Stoker never intended it. Still, as a concept, it's an interesting one, and there aren't a lot of movies that showed Tepish as a vampire. So Universal's plan was at least intriguing. At the time, however, there were no plans to have Dracula Untold be the first step of a major universe. That wouldn't happen until the movie underwent reshoots, a tale as old as time in Hollywood. The intention of the reshoots was to ensure that Evans' Dracula could seamlessly fit into the studio's upcoming plans for an expanded monster universe. Director Gary Shore told IGN, It's optional for them if they want us to use it as that launching pad. Charles Dance's character, the master vampire who turns Vlad, was set to become the Nick Fury of the franchise as a result. The core concept of Dracula Untold is interesting, but little else about the movie is. It takes itself very seriously, but still cares so little for the very complicated geopolitical history it's playing around with. They struggle to make Vlad compelling before and after he becomes a vampire. While some of the little details are cool, like Vlad's armour, some of the battle scenes, everything feels like it was borrowed from better movies. Frankly, it doesn't even seem like it wants to be a fun vampire movie in any way. Makes you wonder why they bothered making it beyond the eagerness to have a franchise. 
Its story weaknesses are all rooted in that fact too. This isn't a movie so much as it's a launching pad, a lesson Universal would not learn when they tried to make this trick happen again a couple years later. Well, Dracula Untold did pretty solid business at the box office, making about $217 million from a $70 million budget. Reviews were mixed and nobody seemed especially excited about the notion of more of this. The movie also faced major criticisms of Islamophobia by portraying Tepish as the hero in the war against Mehmed II in the Ottoman Empire. Generally speaking, the choice to turn a notorious murderous warlord into a sympathetic hero was never going to be an easy one to pull off, and Dracula Untold doesn't. Not even close. The head of the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Mehmed II, is also played by Dominic Cooper in a serious amount of fake tan. Yeah. A mega-franchise starter, this film was not. By the time Universal made major announcements about its shared universe plans, Dracula Untold was thoroughly excluded from the narrative. Universal had first announced plans for another take on The Mummy in 2012. John Spates, the screenwriter of Prometheus and the upcoming adaptation of Dune, told MovieWeb, I see this as the sort of opportunity I had with Prometheus, to go back to a franchise's roots in dark, scary source material and simultaneously open it up to an epic scale we haven't seen before. The plan was to make something closer in tone to the 1932 title than the 1999 reboot, which was more family-friendly. Len Wiseman was attached as director, then Andres Machete, before finally locking things down with Alex Kurtzman, one half of the screenwriting duo behind Star Trek and Transformers reboots. Before joining the film as director, Kurtzman had been tapped alongside Chris Morgan to help craft a dark universe from the ground up. Variety reported the news in 2015 pretty sparsely, noting that the writers were teaming up, quote, in an attempt to reboot the long list of classic monster franchises in Universal's library that includes Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Wolfman, The Mummy, Invisible Man, and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. In a piece written by the same publication a year later, Kurtzman and Morgan offered more information on their plans for the then-unnamed franchise. Morgan said, This is not a heightened world. We're exploring issues of family identity and questions of where do I belong in the world? He also argued that audiences were hungry for a change of pace from the morally clear heroics of superheroes, saying, quote, Heroes tend to be perfect, but most of the people in the audience aren't ever going to know what it's like to be the smartest, strongest, or fastest person alive. But there's a darkness inside everybody, and everybody wants to be able to turn a curse into empowerment. The monsters have been in the shadows, and now it's time to bring them out into the light. Donna Langley, chair of Universal Studios, confirmed that the characters would interact with one another across several movies, and that they were, quote, incubating it at the moment, and were taking the time to get it right. Having said that, they still plan to have a new monster movie come out every year, with shooting set to begin on The Mummy in early 2016. At the time of that article's publication, no cast was attached to the project. One week later, their star would emerge. Sources told Variety, once again, in late November 2015, that none other than Tom Cruise was in talks to take the lead role in The Mummy. At that time, it was said that Cruise wouldn't produce the film, but would take a, quote, major part in development. This was a surprising announcement. Well, Cruz's image had taken a beating thanks to his vocal support of Scientology and the overexposure of his marriage to Katie Holmes, he was still a very big deal in Hollywood. Indeed, Cruz is one of the few actors of his level of fame and clout who hadn't joined a big franchise over the past five years. Even now, after everything that's happened, Cruz is one of the few actors in the business who can basically do whatever the hell he wants. So it was kind of weird that he would want to join a potentially long-running franchise based on pre-existing IP where he would ultimately be part of an Avengers-style ensemble. 
As the mummy took shape, Universal went big with their plans for what they were now calling the Dark Universe. A Hollywood Reporter piece from 2016 detailed how Universal had staked out release dates for untitled monster movies in April 2018 and mid-2019. Earlier that year, they had announced plans to make an Invisible Man reboot with Johnny Depp in the title role, and other plans included a Bride of Frankenstein film, set to be released before a Frankenstein adaptation starring Javier Bardem, and gossip continued over the possibility of Phantom of the Opera and Creature from the Black Lagoon imaginings. One cannot help but wonder what the dark and edgy modern-day action reboot of Phantom would be like. My idea involves Eric as a Vegas EDM DJ, so give me a call, Universal. Notably missing from this roster was Dracula, with Dracula Untold basically left out on the curb and erased from the potential Dark Universe expansion. Sorry, Luke Evans. Cruz's presence in The Mummy guaranteed a few things, the main one being that the series would indeed become more action-focused than those original plans for this new reboot. Indeed, the film was almost entirely reshaped around Cruz. Shortly after the film opened, Variety, once again, reported that Cruz had wielded immense creative control over almost every aspect of production and post-production, including rewriting the script with input from his Mission Impossible collaborator Christopher McQuarrie, and having his own editor take over the cutting. Cruz is a self-described perfectionist who does all of his own stunts. It's really the biggest selling point about his career nowadays and Mummy was quickly reshaped to fit those tendencies. This isn't something many actors can get away with now that the latter era star system pales in comparison to the selling power of IPs. But at that moment in time, Tom Cruise is, has always been, and always probably will be bigger than The Mummy. Reportedly, it was pretty easy for Cruise and his team to steamroll Alex Kurtzman, a relatively inexperienced director who struggled to handle the epic scope of the film. According to Variety's sources, again, Cruise was the real director. The script readouts asked for by Cruz also heavily tilted the focus of the story towards his character, the roguish soldier-turned-occasional thief Nick Morton. This seemingly included lines referring to Morton as a young man. At the time of the release, Cruz was 54. And the person saying this to him is played by Russell Crowe, who's actually a year younger than Cruz. The film really wants us to believe that Cruz is the same age as his bantering colleague played by Jake Johnson, and it does not work. It's, it's really weird, guys, seriously. The rewrite also involved unfortunately downplaying the importance of the mummy herself, who this time is played by Sofia Botella. In the original script, she and Cruz apparently had near equal screen time. Not in this one. The writers also added the twist that saw Cruz's character become possessed to give him more of a dramatic arc. Russell Crowe, as Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde, the obvious Nick Fury of this franchise plan, helped to pad out the shared universe. Frank Walsh, the supervising art director, described the film as one of two halves, before Tom and after Tom. At the time of the film's release, Universal released a supportive pro-cruise statement denying that he had a negative impact on the mummy. They insisted, He has been a true partner and creative collaborator, and his goal with any project he works on is to provide audiences with a truly cinematic movie-going experience. In 2019, Kurtzman admitted that, The mummy wasn't what I wanted it to be. I'm no longer involved in that, and I have no idea what's going on with it. I look back at it now, and what felt painful at the time ended up being an incredible blessing for me. By the time The Mummy opened in theatres on June 9th, 2017, Universal was still pushing the Dark Universe hard. The film opens with a title sequence for this planned franchise, and the studio had also released a cast image of the main Dark Universe players, which included Cruz, Crow, Butella, Bardem, and Depp. But it wasn't a good sign that the opening title just made audiences snicker. I can attest to that happened when I saw it. And that cast image was clearly a Photoshop job since Universal hadn't been able to get all five actors in the room at the same time. 
internet's reactions to this marketing were mostly ones of laughter, and frankly, it wasn't that much different for the film. Critics universally disliked the film, veering between finding it boring and beyond comprehension. Vince Mancini of Uproxx wrote, If you like incomprehensible collections of things that vaguely resemble other things, you might have enjoyed in the past, then The Mummy is the movie for you. David Ehrlich of IndieWire called it the worst film of Cruise's career. Glenn Kenny, writing for RogerEbert.com, said, I found something almost admirable about the film's cheek. It's amazingly relentless in its naked borrowing from other better horror and sci-fi movies that I was able to keep occupied making a checklist of the movies referenced. One of these said references is a long-running part involving Jake Johnson's ghost-slash-revived corpse that is straight out of an American werewolf in London, and I'm genuinely stunned they got away with it. But ultimately, nobody seemed particularly infused by the possibility of more movies like this, and many noted that the mummy seemed to exist primarily to hint at future movies rather than tell its own story. The small Easter egg referencing the Stephen Summers movies just made people yearn for Brendan Fraser. As they should. The Mummy really is a mishmash of better movies forced together in an ill-fitting narrative. The action scenes are all very Mission Impossible-esque, but somehow fall flat despite the obvious technical prowess on display. All of the wannabe Avengers aspects are so blatant, because that's the entire reason this movie exists. Crow's Dr. Jekyll exists solely to spout exposition like Nick Fury and then turn into Mr. Hyde, who looks like Steve Bannon but talks like Phil Daniels from the Park Life song by Blur. Poor Annabelle Wallace is given a nothing role as the love interest, but not really. The chemistry between her and Cruz is weird. And the death of the mummy herself is coded in such horrifically rapey subtext that it's actually quite discomforting to watch. Frankly, you'd be better off just going and watching the 1999 movie. At least that one is fun. All in all, The Mummy has a very portentous view of itself, but it has no real thematic heft behind its intentions. It wants to be a big dumb action movie, but it has none of the charm of the Stephen Summers versions of the story. And it's not all that horror-influenced either. It's a Tom Cruise vehicle, and all of the elements of the Universal Monster story that the studio wanted to promote are flattened by the demands of his star power. Sophia Butella has great on-screen presence, but she's been given nothing to do beyond be hot and evil, and then be killed. And boy, the way she is killed, like I said, very upsetting. In the end, the powers of the mummy are given to Cruz, presumably so he can become the Captain America of this universe's version of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is named Prodigium. Once again, we have to ask ourselves, how the hell was Universal going to fit the Phantom of the Opera into this mess? I think about it constantly, you guys. Ultimately, The Mummy grossed about $410 million from a budget reported to be anywhere between $125 and $195 million. Either way, it failed to match up to the other 2017 blockbusters. This was the year of Star Wars The Last Jedi, which made $1.3 billion, Spider-Man Homecoming, Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2 for Ragnarok, and Wonder Woman all made over $800 million. Why would audiences want to go see a wannabe superhero franchise when they have actual superhero franchises? And a lot of them. It didn't take long for the Dark Universe to disappear in a puff of smoke. A costly failure after one movie that the studio has been all too happy to pretend never happened. Kurtzman and Morgan stepped down from helming the franchise. And Universal eventually made, frankly, the smartest decision they could have with their monsters. They handed proceedings over to Bloomhouse. Producer Jason Bloom's production house has become the home of cinematic horror this century thanks to films like Get Out, Happy Death Day, and the revival of Halloween. 
They entered a first-look deal with Universal in 2014, and following the failure of The Mummy, they were soon brought on board to bring classic monster horror back to the studio. Gone were the plans for an interconnected universe. Instead, Bloomhouse just wanted to bring the monsters back to their low-budget roots. Their first hit came with The Invisible Man, a deeply unnerving modern reimagining of the Claude Rains film that removed Johnny Depp in favour of Elizabeth Moss, and told a very upsetting story of domestic violence and gaslighting. It worked, evoking the core sinister nature of the source material while being entirely its own thing. As well as that aforementioned Dracula adaptation with Karen Kusama, we're getting a Wolfman movie with Ryan Gosling attached to the title role. Speaking as a fan of those classic Hollywood monsters, this development makes far more sense to me than the Dark Universe ever did, but I still kind of mourn what we could have had. Don't get me wrong, The Mummy is a bad movie in every way, but I'm morbidly curious to know what a franchise would have looked like had it continued. Would Javier Bardem's Frankenstein's monster be battling some big and discernible evil alongside magic Tom Cruise? Would the Hunchback of Notre Dame be an emo sex symbol who plays acoustic guitar from the top of the cathedral? And once again, what is the Phantom doing in all of this? EDM DJ guys, give me a call. The Dark Universe will forever stand tall among lovers of horror and industry train wrecks as one of Hollywood's bigger flops of the modern blockbuster age. Here's hoping that the monsters will finally get their dues under the rule of House of Bloom. Thanks so much for listening to Fangphology. This episode was written and performed by Kaylee Donaldson and edited by Catherine Slavova. If you've missed my illustrious Kiwi colleague, do not worry, for we shall return together soon, and she will be here next month with her solo episode. If you liked this episode, please like, share, review us wherever you get your podcasts, all that fun stuff. More information and links to our research can be found on our website at fangphology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, which are also at Fangphology. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon for another episode. 